Where are you based, David? I'm in uh, South Central Pennsylvania, outside of the uh, state capital of Harrisburg. Oh, wow. Okay. About about three hours from uh, New York City. And where is that? A couple hours from Philadelphia. I'm sorry? Uh, Pittsburgh, down that way? Whereabouts yeah, Pittsburgh's about three hours west. Right, okay. Philadelphia's about two hours east. So you're right in Manhattan. Manhattan. I've, yeah, been so to Pittsburgh. A... I've been to Pittsburgh. It's a nice city. Oh, it's a great city. Yeah. yeah you really. ride the verniculars up and down the mountains? I did, yes. Yeah, a lot of fun, right? Great, great museums there as well. Yes, absolutely. And yeah. have you been having a snowpocalypse there like they're getting in Texas? Uh, probably, you know, we've probably had more snow here than we normally have this winter. We're in a valley where it's, you know, kind of a one inch or less kind of area. Uh, but we've had some pretty big storms this winter. Yeah. Well, you just never know anymore what, what you're going to get it with. Yes. <laughs> unpredictable, just like investing, right? <laughs> well, yeah, pre- uh, investing is pretty predictable, isn't it? Well, I should say term. just like stock trading, it's unpredictable. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, let's unpredictable in the long term. It's predictable. Exactly. There you go. Perfect. Yeah. Well, let's let's get into it. Um, obviously, uh, for people tuning in, we're uh, talking today. Welcome back to QAV, by the way. Episode. I think this is four oh nine. Our guest today coming to us, as you've just heard from Pennsylvania, David Waldron, author of "Build Wealth with Common Stocks." Uh, welcome to the show, David. Thank you, Cameron Tony. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your investing journey? When did you start and how did it develop? I started, I would guess, about 23 years ago, 1998, um, working uh, in my field. My former career, which I retired from, was in post-secondary career education. I ran campuses as a, as a campus president. And, of course, we had, in, you know, in the states we call them the 401k, but the retirement plan you know, was kind of thrown at us. and. It's up to you to work the mutual funds and eventually the ETFs to, to figure out, you know, how to make, make something of it. And that's where I started getting involved in investing. And, you know, at that time, mostly mutual funds. And I had a lot of hits and misses. I eventually started investing in stocks maybe after the dot-com crash of 2000 um, and uh, did all the wrong things. Macro investing, top-down investing putting together my own de- indexes of bio- biotechnology funds and this trend and that trend um, <clears throat> probably, you know, paid my, uh, my tuition in stock losses as I, as I call it. But eventually I started reading the quarter reports that you get from mutual funds or when they were popular back then from uh, investors in the States, such as uh, 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 Marty Whitman and Charles Royce from the Royce funds. Uh, William Brown from Tweedy Brown Global Value, pretty popular fund. And, and these guys were talking about in their quarter reports, very entertaining presentation on value investing, which kind of struck me for the first time. They talked about Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, and Ben Graham. And it just caught my attention. So it was one of those things that just naturally, I just naturally absorbed the information. Whereas I think a lot of the other investing information was kind of like, whether it made sense to me or not, I just tried it. Um, so even though I was paying too much for the mutual funds in the form of fees, I learned a lot from the quarterly reports and I eventually started applying it. And I guess around, you know, reading books, you know, I read all the books, Graham and, and Buffett and Peter Lynch and all those guys. And eventually about 12 years ago, it started clicking for me. I started, I got out of buying and selling stocks on news and that kind of crazy stuff and started applying value investing hundred percent. And before I knew it, I was beating the market. Not that I was trying to, but as I measured, it's like, wow, this is actually working. Nothing I invented, everything, everything was learned. Um, and then I started writing about it in some publications like Seeking Alpha and Talk Markets, kind of sharing my experiences you know, with the public. I just felt that was an obligation. Um, and then that led to uh, the book, which uh, just came out last month. So really, it's just a, a, my experience in value investing and that it, it really does work. If you, if you buy into it, you believe in it, and you stick with it, it's definitely a very powerful investment paradigm. But David, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here. So, value investing is meant to be dead, isn't it? <laughs> oh, of course, <laughs> but it's never dead. <laughs> it's just it's just overtaken by short-term growth stories, right? Yeah, exactly. Or muted by story, short-term growth stories. Your story sounds exactly like my story. 
similar sort of thing, similar sort of period as well, similar sort of uh, coming to Jesus moment with Warren Buffett and his writings and Charlie Munger's writings. But yeah, very similar. So, so why, I guess the question is, what attracts people like us to value investing over growth investing? If there's money to be made in growth, why, why wouldn't you buy growth stocks? Well, I guess from my experience that you have to fail at growth investing <laughs> uh, and then succeed at value investing to come to that conclusion. But I think a lot of people are either succeeding at growth investing or think they are. Um, and, you know, I've heard you say, Tony, and it's said many times uh, before, is that, you know, all investing is value investing. Ultimately, everybody's trying to buy something that's going to go up in price. That's value and price. Uh, but I think the, to me, the tenets of value is not just value. It's also about discipline. It's also about patience. It's also about long-term versus short-term. Uh, to me, there's a lot of uh, ancillary things that go with value investing that, that makes it so powerful. Yeah, I, I agree. For me, it's, uh, it's growth investing tends to be about the story because you just can't make a decision based on the numbers, whereas value investing is more scientific. It's based on the numbers. And I, I think you make a good point that uh, people get drawn to growth investing until until it stops. It's like uh, I remember a, a property developer telling me that the, the last the last development property developers do is the one that fails and then they get out of the business. And same with growth investing, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, they always so, say condos. Con, when condos are being built left and right, you know it's the end of the real estate. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, don't buy a condo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do you, um, speaking of the sort of scientific approach, do you use a checklist at all when you're deciding to buy a stock? Yes, I do have a, I have a checklist, um, not as extensive as yours, Tony. Yours is a very impressive one, I, I, I might add. Um, I, I basically follow five strategies um, to find the value, which, you know, of course, I have a, lot, have a lot of checklists within each strategy. But the five are uh, define the value proposition of the company, uh, quantify the shareholder yields, uh, measure the returns on management, uh, weigh the valuation multiples, and then also assess the downside risk. And once you've done, once I've done all five and all the checklists went in that, then I determine whether, in my view, the stock of that company is a bull situation right now, a neutral situation, or a uh, a bear situation, and then make uh, investment decisions based on that. And what what kind of metrics do you use to to do that? Like particularly on the how do you value management? Are you using uh, return on investment, for example, or something else? Yeah, management will look at uh, return on equity, return on invested capital uh, are two of my favorites. Uh, you know, re return on equity, of course, and I've heard um, you and Cameron talk about this on your uh, on your uh, on your on your podcast. Is you know, there's there's caveats with all these formulas. You know, return on equity, you got to be careful with uh, stock buybacks, inflating return on equity, and things like that. But I think overall, return on equity does give you a good picture if you're looking at over long term of what management's doing. Um, return on invested capital is probably, you know, number one from Benjamin Graham. And I, I agree with that. Um, also look at, uh, you know, I, I like to read the 10 Ks, you know, the annual reports of the companies. I like to listen in on conference calls. I think a lot of, you know, when I listen to a conference call, I'm thinking of myself, I'm, I'm thinking of the analysts and a lot of investors listening to the content. They want to hear the numbers and where they, where they're going to go next year with the company. And what I'm doing is I'm listening to the context. You know, do they sound like they really believe what they're talking about? I'm listening for the EQ, the executive, or the, you know, the, the emotional quotient of the executives to see if they really sound like they believe in what they're promoting and predicting and forecasting. So do you, do you that, somehow factor that into a checklist? Do you score management based on their EQ, for example? No, that's a good question. It's probably something that's hard to put in a checklist, but something I certainly have on the checklist. You know, jump onto a conference call, listen to not what they're saying, but how they're saying it and why they're saying it. Um, but I would say, going back to your original question, return on equity, return on invested capital are my two big okay. uh, return on management numbers. I also look at growth, uh, previous growth in revenue and earnings. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I stay more into factual numbers as opposed to uh, predictable kind of things. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to predict things, I should say. Yeah, it's, that's hard, isn't it? Um, Getting back to the management side of thing, I just find that find that fascinating that you're you're factoring in that kind of soft side, I'll call it, uh, your your context as you call it. 
Um, who, who would you say um, in your investing universe would be the best manager or a good manager that we could look at as a prototype? Well, the ones that score high on my quote unquote checklist would be uh, Tim Cook at Apple. Okay. For example, I think here's a situation where um, a lot of investors, this investor included, sold Apple after Steve Jobs passed away. So I figure, how can a company get better than Steve Jobs? Mm. Um, then realizing that Tim Cook was handpicked by Steve Jobs, I could have I done better research there. Um, and Steve Jobs actually groomed Tim Cook to, to eventually be a successor, probably not as soon as he wanted, wanted to be. But um, And Tim Cook is just it's incredible what he's done. He's done more for that company than Steve Jobs did as far as outcomes. Um, so when I look at uh, Tim Cook, I think of a, a very powerful manager. I think a lot of people say that about Jeff Bezos of Amazon, um, just strong managers. But at the same time, uh, I also agree with Warren Buffett, you know, CEOs come and go. Don't buy and sell stocks based on the CEO because they're going to come and go. Look for companies that have an enduring quality of management. And those are the companies that you want to invest in and stick with. Yeah. Yeah. So he's, he's spoken a lot about that, hasn't he? About the, uh, the, the company has to be good enough to be run by an idiot because one day it will be, is his famous saying about that. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great one. One of yeah. my favorites. Yeah. Although, I mean, there's, there's, there's certainly evidence for and against that. I, I remember reading Good to Great by Jim Collins 30 years ago. And one of then, my favorite uh, books. And then uh, I think it was about 20 years ago, someone came along and looked at those companies that were in Good to Great, and I think all but one had been bankrupted in the intervening period. So... Uh, you know, nothing, sometimes things don't last forever. It works both ways. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Okay. So you've been investing for a long time. Tell us about uh, what, what kind of returns are you getting um, in the market? Well, I have, you know, actually what I, what I disclose publicly is more of the uh, average uh, return per holding versus the S&P 500 or the, uh, you know, the American index. Um, but I do, I would get that, that question from you, Tony. <laughs> so I'm prepared for it. Uh, so I did my crunching today. So at the close of yesterday's market, I first started uh, investing in common stocks based on what I talk about in the book, The Model Portfolio, in June of 2009. So what I did is I took all 17 holdings, the day of the purchase, what I pay for adjusted for splits and dividends, cost basis. Um, also looked at on the same day, if I spent using a $1,000 benchmark. So let's say we put $1,000 into the stock on that day and also put $1,000 into the index on the same day. And I did, I did that for all 17 stocks based on all the 17 different entry points. And the portfolio has returned an annualized average of 17.21% versus 9.2% for the market. Yeah, so fantastic. almost twice, uh, not as high as you're close to 20%. And I think you, you're, you're much your very detailed checklist, I think, gets you that extra two points. So congratulations, but I'm very happy with my, my results as well. Absolutely, yeah. I, I think once you're getting sort of up around double market, it, it, yeah, some years you'll be above that, some years you'll be below it. But I think, you know, relatively, it's it's a, a good space to be in. That's great. So well done. So you've got, you've got a, a portfolio. Are you saying or are you suggesting that you've held those 17 stocks since that 2009 time or have you traded yes. them on the way? Yeah, I've actually had the 17, I actually had 20. There was three that I did sell. Mm -hmm. So I did not include that here, but one of them I sold uh, above. One was even, one was a little below. So I'm not sure it would have made a big difference. That was uh, Becton Dickinson, IBM, and Exxon Mobil are three stocks I sold around that time, but I, that's it. I, I haven't sold a stock in over four years. That's great. What, um, what, what caused you to sell those stocks? Do you have a checklist for selling as well? Uh, not probably a bigger one, as big a one as I should have, but Becton Dickinson, uh, probably one of my regrets on a sale. I think that's one of those where I was on a conference call and just was not impressed at all. Um, and the numbers, the numbers on my sheets were not looking good either. So I got out thinking I was ahead of the curve, but one thing that Becton Dickinson has going for it is predictable revenue. And that's here it is four years later, that predictable revenue is still working for them. Yeah, right. So the stock has actually done better since I've sold it. But that's that's okay. Lesson learned. Yeah. Uh, 
ExxonMobil, I finally made, actually I wrote an article about this and I said, I better practice what I preach. And my article was called, uh, energy stock prices go up and down with energy prices, not the quality of the company. Yes. I've correct. learned that a lot. You know, if you want to, if you want to own energy stocks in my book, just buy an energy ETF and you get the same result. Good or okay. bad. Um, and then the other stock was IBM. I just, uh, just got tired of the flatlining and, uh, on the on their on their quarter reports, even though I, I tend not to buy or, or sell on quarter reports, it just got to the point where um, I didn't see any more hope for the company. Decided to get out. Right, that's right. it. Okay. That's the last one I sold. It had to be four years ago. Yeah, gee, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, um, you're doing well through that through that strategy. I'm doing well through that strategy, and yet, you know, we, I often feel like. I'm the only person that's using that kind of strategy, and now there's you as well. Why do you think? Why do you think that more people aren't embracing a long-term approach to a do it themselves and b uh, take a more technical or value approach to investing? My top of mind answer on that is Wall Street, as I call it. Wall Street to me is any uh, professional investing anywhere in the world. I just call it Wall Street in the book. Hmm. Um, is very good at propagandizing the investment paradigm towards fees as opposed to performance. Now, of course, nobody out there invests based, oh, I want to pay fees, so let me invest. That's like somebody saying, I want to smoke a cigarette because I want to get cancer. Um, but I think the propaganda between the talking heads and all the articles of which I was part of too, as a writer, article writer on, on Seeking Alpha and Talk Markets, um, after a while, people start buying into the notion of, hey, it's the quarterly report that matters. It's the CEO that matters. It's the, it's the uh, trends that matter, you know, where the product is trending towards. Um, and that's what people are buying and selling on. And when you get caught up in that trap, it becomes a short-term game by accident almost then on purpose, in my, in my view. Yeah, look, I, I tend to agree with you. I think Wall Street and Macquarie Street in Australia or Collins Street in Melbourne, um, it often treats investors like prey. It's, it's how can we squeeze some more, more funds on the management from these people rather than what's in the best interest of these people. And that's where the government struggle here is to try and set up a series of codes and laws that can govern the wealth management industry when, you know, they should be acting for the best interests of their clients, but they're really acting for the best interests of their companies. And that's, that's the dilemma, isn't it? That's right, Tony, because, you know, if you look at, uh, if you believe the statistics that say less than a minority of professional investors actually consistently outperform their benchmark, obviously, if they leverage their business based on that performance, they wouldn't last very long. So what they do have to do is they have to spin other things in order to create the fees. And that's, I'm a, I'm a skeptic when it comes to that, but that's how I say it. Look, I agree with you, but but it begs the question: if we're, if as individuals we're doing this, and I'll speak for myself, I kind of stumbled into it, uh, and then you know saw it was um, a great way as a, a great way to set up an independent life. Uh, but but why haven't the professionals been taught how to do this, and why aren't they doing this? Why are they always tending to at least perform the index, if not underperform the index? Why haven't they cottoned onto this style of investing? I don't get that. Uh Buy and hold. Buy and hold. Buy and hold, but also doesn't a, make a money. more value approach rather than a, a growth approach or a story approach. You know, I, for some reason, they're convinced value is dead, as you said before. Yeah. Honestly, <laughs> that's that's not a new story. That right? story has been going on for years. Yeah. Um, it just comes out every once in a while. I think the Wall Street Journal ever pulls their value investing is dead article out and shakes it off, shakes the dust off. It does a little <laughs> editing to update it and reprints it. You know, it's it's just a belief system, I guess. But I guess it really goes down to taking responsibility. I think we just have to take responsibility um, and know that anything we buy in life, whether it's a car or a house or whatever is based, we're always placing value on it. So why are we not doing that when we're investing? Yeah, right. Yeah. So why is it different when investing? But it comes down to us, doesn't it, as, as end users to apply that sort of discipline. Like, and, and we're not taught to, I don't know about American schools or colleges, but but we're not taught to to do that with our finances. We're not we're not taught to how to invest. We're not taught to what you know watch out for certain things like short term quarterly earnings or whatever, or the fees that are being paid. It's 
it's almost like the debt gets stacked against the individual from the start. And it's, it's probably stacked there by people who profit from that, which is um, the people who should be teaching people how to invest properly and doing yeah, it themselves, by the way. Yeah, a good historical example in my, uh, my former career as an executive, one of my roles was to host financial analysts and hedge fund managers at, at my campus in Boston, Massachusetts, to, for them to kick the tires, as they would call it. So these, these analysts, and there are, some of them are pretty, pretty well-known superstars now, not because they visited me, but for other reasons. And uh, they focused on the now. What are you guys doing right now? Yeah. What are you going to deliver tomorrow? And what are you going to deliver next month? And I, I kind of followed some of them. And we hosted, we had big annual events with Southside analysts. We had breakfast for them, big prep. All my people had to do these presentations for them. And one thing I noticed back then, I think I, I'm not sure I was really aware of it then, but when I started looking back, when I really got into value investing, I realized the short-term mentality of what they're doing. Yeah. So what are you guys going to deliver next month and next quarter? Because next year doesn't matter to our clients. Our clients yeah. want to know what you're going to do now. It's not what have you done. It's what have you done for me lately. It's the machine. And that's, and that's bringing a, an operational business mentality to a, a, an investing situation, which really should be looking at the long term, not the short term. And by the way, these are great people. These are great, great yeah. group of people. I had no yeah. issues with them personally. Yeah. Um, but the short-term thinking is how they're trained. Yeah. They're, doing, they're just doing their jobs. It's kind of ironic that kind of capitalism leads us to that situation and we're investing in capitalism, but it's the worst way to invest in capitalism. So it's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of ironic. I never heard it put that way. That's brilliant. Yeah. But, but I get it. And, it's, uh, and I guess also too, you know, Wall Street, Wall Street and inverted commas makes its money by churn. So they love the fact that markets will move from value to growth because that means you've sold some of your portfolio or all of your portfolio and that gives them a fee. It's the fees. Yeah. Anyway, look, enough of that sort of philosophizing about what's wrong. We're both doing well, so we should focus on that instead. Um, you, you talk in your book about uh, ETFs and, and how you hedge your portfolio. Could you expand on that, please? Yes, at one time, I, you know, I had ETFs as a passive, you know, from a passive standpoint, uh, you know, mutual funds, I guess you could say too. And what I've kind of transitioned to when I really started getting confident about investing in common stocks is hedging is important. I'm not a short seller. I've never shorted a stock in my life. I never will. It's just not for me. I have a tongue twister, you know, to be short sellers or left short uh, until they lose their shirts. Um, <laughs> So for me, how can I hedge? If I'm not going to short a stock on the other side, how can I hedge? And to me, the best approach would be take an ETF, either of your benchmark. So my, my particular portfolio is benchmarked to the S&P 500. So I wanted to do a direct hedge, obviously an S&P 500 index, like a VU from Vanguard would work. Um, I kind of take more of a contrarian approach to that. So my primary, uh, even though I have used the benchmark in the past, I've also used um, tips, tuition, inflation, practice securities, because the you know, number one threat to stocks is inflation, of course. But right now, my primary hedge is the Vanguard uh, FTSE All World XUS. So all international stocks outside of the United States in my, in my particular situation. Mm -hmm. And I find, even though a lot of times, Tony, as you know, sometimes international stocks and Australian stocks and international stocks and American stocks go up and down together, but sometimes they don't. And we got to be prepared uh, to have some kind of hedge. And to me, that's the easiest, simplest way for a do-it-yourself investor to hedge is through ETFs. So when, you're, when you say hedge, what do you mean by that? Because typically, in my mind, a hedge means I'm buying airlines and I'm buying oil. And, you know, they both, one goes up and one goes down. If the oil price rises, the airline stock goes down because their, their major cost is fuel and vice versa. So is, is that how you, is that what you're doing or are you doing something? Yeah, like it's a, it's a hedge more from a broad, I guess maybe from a broader standpoint. Um, and that's definitely an excellent hedge within that industry. From a broader standpoint, if I have a basket of stocks all in the S&P 500 or all in the ACX, what can I hedge that against that's contrarian to that overall on a broad market standpoint that if this market goes down for the next three months or four months or five months or six months and takes everybody with it, what might be on the other side that might be going up to kind of keep the portfolio stable? So I'm looking so at it more that, from a broader standpoint. Is that a 50-50 hedge or how do you weight that? Uh, no, the hedge would be more like 25, 30%. 
Much, yeah, much less. I don't go 50-50, even though as I get older, I might consider that. Okay, so so don't you find that uh, even though you're, you're smoothing out the volatility, you might be reducing your overall returns because one's going up and the other one's going down. So the, the average is, is kind of flatlining. That's possible. I mean, the VEU has been an okay return. It's positive for me, but nothing fantastic. But again, uh, that's the, the investment I make saying this is the one that it's there if I need it. So that's, if, I'm, if I'm diversified in any way, that's my diversification. I mean, I believe in a, in a, uh, you know, I believe in a basket that should be concentrated of stocks. Hmm. But if I'm going to do any diversification, it's going to be with the ETF hedges. Okay. And you, okay. So you, you spoke before about inflation. Could you just, um, and, and in your book, you spoke about the hidden cost of inflation. Could you talk a bit about that and, and whether you're hedging against that or how you take it into account in your portfolio construction, please? Yeah, I have, uh, I might take a look at it again, you know, with the uh, interest rates apparently mm-hmm. rising. We'll see what happens with that. Um, but I have, I have hedged my portfolio with the tips, tuition inflation protected securities, uh, which by design, whether it always works out the way or not, uh, is another question, but by design are designed to go up when, uh, when, it, when inflation rises. So that's a good hedge against stocks, which tend to have trouble with inflation. Um, so I think tips of this inflation, if, you know, eventually with this whole bond thing that's been going on for the past 30 years, if bonds come back and everybody gets back into uh, bond yields again, obviously tips are going to make sense to hedge stock portfolios in my book. We, we don't have anything like a, well, sorry, we probably do have something like tips in Australia, but could you just explain what that product is? Well, the, the one I've invested in is the Vanguard uh, tips. Tuition inflation protected securities is a basket of government securities that, uh, and I tend to go on the short term, uh, the short term uh, uh, as opposed to intermediate or long-term tips. And uh, again, I, I, I really can't get into the detail of it as far as an understanding, uh, but I do know uh, from studying the prospectuses and the quarter reports and such from Vanguard that it's an excellent hedge against rising inflation and rising interest rates. So it's, it's basically a, a Vanguard package product, which is some kind of fund? It's or all you, government securities. It's all government securities, okay. Yes, and you're, in the, in the much, fund, yeah. Again, in terms of hedging your portfolio, how much weight do you put into that kind of product? Again, it wouldn't be more than 10 to 25%. Okay. Yeah, my, my, my portfolio is majority common stocks, common shares. Uh, however, I have other things outside of the portfolio that might be cash and things like that. But yeah, within sure. the portfolio itself, and that's why I look at it, I look at it as a separate independent basket, uh, there might be some ETFs in there at any given time just to mm-hmm. hedge potential uh, downturns. And, and um, the hedging side of things, is that because you're now in a situation where you're living off the income from the portfolio, so you, you, you want to make sure you don't suffer periods of volatility? Uh, Correct, but I, you know, I am an author. I am still working as an author, hmm. so that's my income. Sure. Um, so I'm still, I still, for me personally, I still see, even though I may look like I'm a past retirement, I'm still, uh, I'm still looking forward to having my portfolio grow. So when I do actually retire, <laughs> it will, uh, it will be there for us. Sorry, I didn't. I didn't mean. Uh, no, I'm, I'm just. That way. Self, I'm self-deprecating, Tony. No worries. That's okay. What what um, what you're describing is is kind of what people would do if they were in full retirement mode, and they were trying to make sure that they got a certain level of income every year, rather than being in growth mode, where over the long term you can suffer periods of volatility uh, because you know you're going to you know, get a an increased income longer term. Yeah, what, yeah, absolutely. What you make me think of too. What I'm trying to avoid with my approach. Um, which is also you know, your approach, Warren Buffett's approach, the, va- the best approach, I think, is um, avoid getting into that high dividend yield trap that a lot of retirees are in right now. Yeah, yeah. I talk about in the book. Yeah. Where they're chasing yield. And uh, I don't know about you, I, I see it as a very dangerous uh, escapade. It is. And it's, it's plenty, of, um, plenty of broken roads littered with high yield shares and, and even schemes in Australia, which haven't worked out well for people. And in fact, the, the the big one after the GFC was the banking stocks in Australia, which started to pay out up to ninety percent of their uh, income in as dividends, 
and retirees flooded into them and then they went through their downturn because you can't run a business if you're investing 10% back into the into the company. Uh, and those people got caught there. And then in just on a day or so ago, I was reading uh, Warren Buffett's annual letter to the Berkshire Hathaway shareholders, and he, he called out people who were chasing yield into lower-grade bonds and, and reminded people of how that didn't do well back in the 80s. That's right. Yeah. But it's an interesting, I mean, it's an interesting world we find ourselves in where if you are a retiree, you're left with very little option to uh, to gain some kind of income. Um, annuities are paying nothing. Bank deposits are paying nothing. There's, uh, you really have to take on the risk of, of owning a share and getting there sort of, um, or an index fund and getting the average yield from the market as the best alternative. Yeah, as con- absolutely. As, as controversial as it is, I, I'm a believer in, in uh, yield on cost. Mm-hmm. And I try to remind my readers that, you know what, don't not buy a great stock at a great price because it's yielding 1.1%. Because 10 years from now, if you do the yield based on what you paid for the stock 10 years ago, it might be yielding a 10, 12, 15%. Exactly. Yeah, that's a really good and point. That's, that's the kind of high-yield stocks I like. Yes, I, I agree. <laughs> well, we, we spoke about one just recently, a, a bank, an investment bank in Australia called Macquarie Bank, just recently uh, wrote to its shareholders, offered them a, a high-yield hybrid. So I don't know if they have those in the States, but it's a bond, a, a corporate bond, which can be converted back into shares at in 10 years' time. Uh, although all of the conversion metrics are stacked in favour of the bank, they decide when it happens and and uh, whether you get cash or shares and all that kind of stuff. But the the high yielding note that they were marketing was about three quarters of one percent higher than the yield on the stock, and the stock's a great investment. So you'd expect in ten years' time to receive multiples of uh, of yield if you invested in the stock rather than on the in, in the bond. Yes. Yeah. And you know, one of the things I learned from Warren Buffett is. Uh, make sure when you're investing in stocks that you look at how the stock is yielding for the shareholder compared to uh, the 10-year treasury or Australia, the 10-year, you know, the 10-year Australian bond. Mm -hmm. And that could really be a telling story of whether the stock is better than owning a bond right now or whether the stock is worse than owning a bond right now. And when you say yield, you're talking about the earnings yield there rather than the dividend yield, yeah? Yeah, earnings yield. I also look at free cash flow yield. Yeah, okay. Those types of yields. And it compared to the 10-year treasury yep. to see if the stock is significantly outperforming the treasury. If not, then why not just own the treasury, right? Yeah, oh, exactly. Yeah, or, or less or risk. The stock. That's a pretty low bar these days when treasuries are yielding you know, less than 1%. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> it's nuts. <laughs> yeah, if your company can't, uh, can't earn more, more than 1%, it should be probably bought by somebody else who can make it run better. Yeah. Yeah, most of the times, yeah, most of those formulas are when the when the yields were more like three percent, four percent. Yeah, no, exactly. And you get a stock yielding six, eight percent on the cash flow side, not the yep. dividend side. Yes. Then you say, okay, now we got something that's worth worth owning over a treasury. Yeah, Cam, I've, I've monopolized conversation here. Do you have any questions for um, for our interview guest? Yes, I've got a few. Um, uh, I, I was just going to point out as a side note that I enjoyed seeing that the title of your first chapter is Get Rich Slow, which was also the title of our very first episode back in 2019. So as soon as I saw that, I thought, okay, we're on the, we're on the same page as this guy. Um, I noticed in the, in the book, in your model portfolio, you included Microsoft and, and earlier you talked about owning Apple. Uh, that surprised me, both of those, because they are stocks that uh, I think would struggle to get through Tony's checklist. And I w- and it also saddened me to see how much Microsoft's share prices had grown since you added them to the model portfolio, because as our listeners know, I used to work there and I left there with a large sum of shares and I sold them in 2004. <clears throat> and if I just held on to them, uh, who knows? But anyway, uh, can you explain your? Because I think you're in the book. You mentioned that your process for choosing Microsoft for the model portfolio was a little bit different than you uh, used for some of the other stocks. Can you talk us through how that ended up in there? Yeah, well, my, yeah, Microsoft. Um, I think back in I think I bought it back in 2011, and at That's the right. time, the CEO was under a lot of pressure. Steve Barmer. Yeah. All right. If you want to name him, okay. <laughs> Steve Barmer was the CEO. And he was under a Monkey lot of pressure boy. from Wall Street and analysts and investors and 
your neighbor would say, why would you invest in Microsoft with them running the company? Mm -hmm. um, and I was like, you know what? Go back to Warren Buffett. We were talking just about with Tony who said, you never know, CEOs come and go. Um, and I figured, you know, my common sense, this is, I think it was a common sense investment. My common sense told me this is a great company. Yeah, people are knocking, you know, PC is dead. Um, but I also knew that they were getting involved in other things such as the cloud and, you know, they're, they were just a quality company that maybe needed to do leadership or whatever it was. And that turned out to be true, but that was, I wasn't predicting that, but I expected something would happen. And at $25 a share and all the valuation metrics at the time, to me, it was a no brainer. And if I had the moment back, I would have bought, thousands of shares. And right now I'd be having this podcast from an island in the South Pacific with you guys. <laughs> but it, so back back then when you did your calculations, you ran your process of it, you determined that it was undervalued. Yes, I did. Hmm, interesting. At $25 a share around the time, I think Justin now, it's, Justin it might be more like $22 a share after dividends and splits, but I'm not even sure they split, but um. Yeah, I, I determined it was my valuation metrics said it was undervalued by the market. Hmm. And the reason why is because the CEO and the PC is dead. Hmm. And my bet, I hate to use the word bet with investing, but I had to say to myself, I know the CEO is going to change. And I don't think Bill Gates is going to let the company go anywhere but up. That was my thought. But funnily enough, David and Cam, when I was living in Toronto in 2013, Microsoft came up on my screens as well. Uh, and I, I didn't do any investing in North America when I was living there. I stayed investing in Australia. But when people would ask me what I, what, what I would recommend, I would say Microsoft. Wow. Um, and it's done well since then too. But I had has, the same response as you did, David. What? Microsoft? Forget about it. It's dead. But has, has Berkshire yeah. ever added Microsoft to its portfolio? Ooh, I don't think so. It's certainly its biggest holding now is Apple, but I don't Apple, think it's added yeah. Microsoft. Yeah. Yeah. Which is... I wonder if they will stop from doing that because of Bill Gates being on the board. I don't know. Yeah, they're like good friends. Maybe that could be a, a yeah caveat for not owning it. Um, I wanted to, if I could, uh, David, just read out. I've, I've been plugging your book in our club newsletter for the last uh, month or so, taking just quotes from it that I enjoyed. I thought I'd just read a couple of these out for our audience mostly, um, and but maybe you want, you can provide some commentary on them after I read them out. This first one's about people who try and play the trends. You wrote, from purely an investment standpoint, there are just a few market timers in each event who got in with a lucky twist of fate or the rare intuitive sense of market conditions, profited and got out. Those are the ones who dominate the financial news feeds and sponsored content, giving a false appearance of the bullishness or bearishness in the market fad among the masses of well-intentioned investors. The sobering truth reminds us the money-making headliners represent a tiny percentage of the active participants. Too many players in the fad lose money and, echoing the typical casino gambler, share only the rare winning bets. Just another reminder that market fads make money for a lucky few at the zero-sum expense of the silent investor majority that loses out from the desperate hope to make a lifetime of capital gains in a single market cycle. The list of household names who made fortunes beating the market by owning investments with utility over extended periods is lengthy. Yet, I am unable to name a celebrity investor off the top of my head who adds wealth year in and out on fast money market timing fads. Price is what you pay, value is what you get. So talking a bit about survivor bias there, I think, which we mentioned from time to time on our show. Well, I think that, you know, that quote, and I appreciate you reading, Cameron, was really based on my observations. You know, some people do have the intuitive sense. I've, I've witnessed a few people, I'm not gonna name them, I wouldn't name them in the book either, that just seem to have an intuitive sense to time the market, but there's such a small minority of the population. And that's, so that is you know, good for them. But the negative of it is, you know, it's the old two and, forget we say the 2080 rule, now it's the two and 98 rule. So you have 2% that have this, they're wired DNA wise to do this. And the other 90% say, say wow, I, I could do that too. And the truth is, no, you can't. And they try it and they fail. And 
And unfortunately, as long as those people exist, the 2%, we'll call them, uh, they're going to get people's attention. Yeah. Because fast money is palatable for a lot of people. And, you know, I have to say this, Cameron, as far as the uh, full disclosure, I didn't. I saw that Get Rich Slow uh, for the first time yesterday. <laughs> get Rich Slowly. Your pocket Get Rich Slowly first time yesterday. I had a, uh, when I named the chapter, the first line is informed investor. Uh, an informed investor has a far greater chance of getting rich slow than getting rich fast, but getting rich slowly is better than not at all. I had a little back and forth with my editor. Uh, so you guys will scroll my editor. You guys will scroll my editor on this one. She says, it's not slow, sl slow, it's slowly. It's get rich slowly. And my answer here is, well, I understand that grammatically, but we don't say get rich fastly. <laughs> right? We say get rich slow. So yeah. I compromise whether we have slow in the title as slowly in the, in the line. So I just had to throw that in there. <laughs> well, yeah, I was listening good, good. to, sorry. Sorry, Cam. Good point you make though, David, about, about those 2% who are hardwired to, to uh, you know, ride the trends. The other, the other thing which I think is lost in that kind of analogy too is that those 2% tend to be 100% focused on the, on the market all the time. They're, they're networking their butts off. They're in the middle of things. They're probably living and working on Wall Street or something similar. They're not like you and I who are sitting at home and, and you know, we have lives outside of that and we're investing is just to facilitate those lives. You, 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 it's very hard to go from zero to that to a hundred with the, and be a two percenter without devoting your whole life to it too. Absolutely, yeah, hundred percent. And I agree. appreciated that in the I think it was in the the last pages of your book you remind everyone that health and happiness are the most important things, uh, not money, and uh, to put your health and happiness first. Um, yes, which I think Cameron, is absolutely. I, you know, my my uh, my my beautiful wife of twenty nine years now is a um, type one diabetic uh, with end stage kidney disease mm. on home dialysis, I'm her caregiver. So I'm very in tune with um, health being much more important than money. All yeah. the money in the world, you know, can't get your kidney unless you get a kidney. Well, I'm yeah. sorry to hear that, so I wish her well. Yeah. Oh yeah, she's doing great. She's, she's, in, the, she's in the medical books as, as one of the best patients ever in the history of kidney disease. She went 30 years after they, when she first got diagnosed, they, took, they gave her five to eight years for dialysis. She went almost, let me see, eight, and she went almost 30 years before she had to do dialysis. Wow. She must, she's a great patient and a great person. So I, but I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, yeah well, in terms of uh, similar titles to things, we, we had an episode come out a while back called Deworsification. <laughs> which uh, I thought Tony had made up. And then I was watching Charlie Munger's uh, speech last week and he said he calls it diversification. I was like, there you go. Munger's stealing Tony's stuff again. It's, it's <laughs> scandalous at his age, 97. He's still stealing Tony's stuff and not giving attribution. Um, let's, uh, let me read another quote here, part of your investing wisdom. Despite the inevitable volatility, I have no idea and forever dismiss expert predictions on market trends, stock prices, and interest rate movements as no more dependable than the entertaining Ouija board. Remain steadfast in buying and holding the stocks of quality companies to outperform the roller coaster movements of the market over time. On the contrary, trading stocks and currencies on speculation in the quest for fast money is fleeting, and the house wins most of those wages anyhow. I just thought that was nicely put. Thank you. Um, let's talk about Bitcoin before we uh, wrap up. Uh, <laughs> Tony sent me an email today saying we had to get someone on to talk about Bitcoin, and I wasn't sure if he was pulling my leg or not. <laughs> he said, no, I'm serious. We should probably do it. Do you, uh, do you have any thoughts on investing in Bitcoin, David? Because I have a lot of friends who are telling me, get in on Bitcoin. It's going to be worth $500,000 a coin. Well, Cameron, I received an email yesterday saying that I've been granted 1.9378754 Bitcoins. I guess if you round it up, that's two Bitcoins, $100,000. You just have to send very, your credit card details to somebody in Kenya? 
Oh yeah, very professional looking email. All I had to do is hit the uh, little square box in order to claim my free 1.937543 Bitcoins. Um, and to very me- specific number. <laughs> yeah, to me, that was a uh, how I feel about Bitcoins. <laughs> I, I, delete, I deleted the email immediately. <laughs> What was what was Warren's quote we used recently? Rat poison squared. I think he called Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. Again, that goes the two some of the two percenters are are making a killing on Bitcoin, but we'll see how long that lasts. Yeah. Yeah. Seems like a trend. And uh what about uh, the GME story from your country in the last few weeks? Have you been paying much attention to that? I've read about it, of course, like everybody else. Um I find it fascinating that, you know, I've got, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a fan of and a proponent of retail investing. So on one hand, it was great to see retail investors, you know, kicking the professional investors, butt for a change. Um, but the way it was handled by Robin, of course, that's controversial. And then, you know, you look at Robin, who's supposed to be the, you know, Robin Hood markets in America. I don't know if they're familiar with it in Australia, I guess from the story, maybe are, but they, uh, you know, they're supposedly the, the, the favorite of millennials and the and the best uh, or the you know the favorite stockbroker for the young crowd today, and maybe they just reminded us that they're also controlled by the professionals. You, whether you think whether so? willing or not, they might not have a choice. I'm not knocking Robin Hood. I'm just saying it kind of exposed what goes on behind the scenes. And Tony, you probably have a better a better idea of what goes behind the scenes than I do as far as these uh, how. Stocks are traded on the back end, but it's uh, it's it's crazy. It's crazy. Do you think the retailers really kicked Wall Street with that one? The retail investors, yeah. Well, maybe on the on the, on the front page of the news they did. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of I think a lot of them were probably made aware of it and got out in time or whatever. Um, Hope so. But it made it made for a good news story, I guess. Good headline. Yeah, the only headline I've read of someone who made millions out of the. Uh, GME saga was a person who's now facing charges for pumping and dumping it. So, yeah. Yeah, pumping and dumping is not good. So, yeah, we don't no. want to be promoting that. Yeah. All right. Well, um, maybe we'll just uh, I'll wrap up with uh, your definition of value investing from the book, which I thought was nicely put. Buy and hold the common shares of US exchange traded, dividend paying, well managed, financially sound businesses that produce easy to understand products or services, have enduring competitive advantages from wide economic moats, enjoy steady free cash flow, and are trading at a discount to the investors perceived intrinsic value at the time of purchase. Next, of utmost importance, and perhaps the biggest challenge, practice patience in waiting for the investment thesis to play out as projected over a long-term horizon. Nicely put, sir. Thank you. Yeah, I believe patience is the scarcest commodity in investing. And so, the, whenever you're on the scarcest commodity, you're probably gonna, you're probably going to do well with it. So, patience, patience works. That's always the thing Warren Buffett says, doesn't he? Yes. You don't need a high IQ. You need patience to be an investor. And yeah. speaking I got, of, I got it. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, after you. After you. No, speaking of Warren Buffett, you know, I've quoted him six times in the book, and I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, but you know, when you write a book, of course, as you guys, as Cameron, as you know, you have to send out, you know, permission requests to use any quotes for using them in your book. And I sent the six quotes to Warren Buffett's assistant in Omaha, Nebraska. Not expect, not knowing what was going to happen, thinking he's going to come back and say, you know, thanks for uh, trying, but no, thank you, or whatever. And the next, the next day, within 24 hours, now the the publishing companies, the big publishing companies, have been waiting weeks for their responses. 24 hours later. Warren Buffett's assistant sends me an email explaining to me that she printed out all six quotes I have in the book, in the manuscript at the time. You know, as we famously know, Warren doesn't use email, he doesn't use computers. She presented him the printed emails. He read each one of them, signed off on each one of them, gave them to her, said, wish Mr. Walsh the best on his book. Wow. 24 hours. 24 hours later. Did you frame and 24 weeks later, I got some of the major publishers' permissions <laughs> or not, or not. Dan, we need to write a book and put some, put a hundred profit quotes in it. <laughs> yeah. so I, I had to share that story because it was, it was a wonderful experience because he, he's, 
his reputation doesn't precede him. His reputation is is who he is. Yeah, well, the story, absolutely. The story I've told too many times, David, is um, about, I don't know, 16 years ago, um, in the early days of podcasting, uh, Steve Jobs got up on stage at Macworld and said that they were going to put a podcast directory into the next version of iTunes. And I did a blog post that day saying, well, that's nice, Steve, but how the hell do we get our podcasts into it? You didn't tell us that. And I woke up the next morning with an email from Steve Jobs saying, Cameron uh, talked to Eddie Q. And I sent Eddie Q an email. He's now Senior Vice President at Apple. I sent him an email saying, not sure if this is real or not. And he Uh replied right back saying, oh, no, that's real. And uh, here's what you need to do. So, yeah, guys like Steve Jobs and uh, Warren Buffett, uh, you know, impressive, their uh, attention to that kind of thing. Cameron, I wonder if you uh, you might have spurred Steve Jobs to realize that podcasting was one of Apple's best kept secrets, right? The podcast was invented by Apple, and they never really they never really promoted it until recently. They kind of hid it behind the scenes. Yeah, so maybe he got his attention on that one. He said, "What are we doing with this podcast? And let's get it out there." Yeah, yeah. and I've been waiting for them to figure out a way to help us monetize it ever since. And they're not interested. Yeah, I guess um, it's still still there, hiding, hiding <laughs> in the background. Anyway, David, uh, we should let you go. Thank you uh, so much for taking time to come out and chat with us today. And congratulations on the book again for the listeners. It's Build Wealth with Common Stocks. You can get it on Amazon and uh, every other online bookstore, I guess. I'm not sure if it's in bookstores in Australia, but we can order it online here. Uh, Great book. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, congratulations on your success as well. Thank you very much, Cameron and Tony. I appreciate it. Thank you both for being a new source of value investing wisdom for me. Much, much appreciated. Thanks, David. Really enjoyed the book and good luck, mate. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you, mates. Bye.